Uh, if you guys have uh, been around the last couple weeks at our church, you'll notice that a lot of things have been changing. Uh, the signage has all changed. The graphics have all changed. If you go uh, to the website, you'll see that that has changed as well. And um, it comes on the heels of us kind of announcing at our members' retreat uh, what the five-year vision for our church is. And it's really what we're talking about is what is the vision for our church for the next five years? Where do we see our church growing and following God and, um, and, and being led in the Lord? And so if you go to the website, you'll see this kind of statement on there that says, helping people to know God and discover their mission. Helping people to know God and discover their mission. So there's a lot of things changing, right? But I want to start off today when we're talking about, and this will be the first sermon of a two-sermon series just about the five-year vision of our church, the direction that our church is going in. But I wanted to start off by kind of talking about some of the things that are not changing. Um, Our mission statement, who knows what our mission statement is? Maybe. Our mission statement reads this, we exist to see the gospel transform people into spirit-filled disciples who know they are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. Amen. That is not changing. We still believe that understanding your belovedness in Christ, not because of anything that you do, not because of anything that you've earned, not for any work that you've done, you haven't impressed God, you haven't earned your place with God, but it was given to you through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that we are adopted as sons and daughter of the Lord Most High because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That is your identity, and that's not changing. It's still really important. But the five-year vision really focuses on the first half of that statement, that we exist to see the gospel transform people into spirit-filled disciples. The question is, what does it mean to be transformed into a spirit-filled disciple? What does that look like? Throughout the scriptures, we see many incredible examples of the raw power, sometimes even described as explosive power of the Holy Spirit when it enters into the lives of believers. It was through the power of the Holy Spirit that God created the foundations of the world. It is through the Holy Spirit that God breathed life into dead, dry bones. He healed the sick. He gave sight to blind men, and he gave people the freedom to dream again. In fact, it is the Holy Spirit that changed, transformed a bunch of disciples who are lost and afraid and insecure into bold witnesses for Christ that would change the world and turn it upside down and establish the church. That's what it looks like to be a spirit-filled disciple. But if I were to ask you to raise your hand, if you feel like you're living with that same kind of power in your life, if you feel like you just don't, not that you, I think intellectually we realize that we have the Holy Spirit in us, but do we realize that there's power in that? That it should affect the way that we live our lives. Would you raise your hand if I asked you, if I asked you are you living with that, that kind of transformed, spirit-filled life? Would you raise your hand today? I'm not talking about being changed, and I'm not talking about looking somewhat different. The word the Bible uses for transformed is the same word for metamorphosis. The same idea that there's a change in your nature when you come to Christ. The same idea that as you, you should be, your nature should be changed in the same way that a, that a caterpillar, caterpillar is changed into a butterfly. 
Have you been transformed? And I think the questions for us today is, why has that transformation not taken place in my life? And how does that transformation take place? Okay, so we're going to look in today's passage. We're going to find three ways that spiritual transformation takes place. The first is through learning. The second is through practice. And the third is through community. <clears throat> so again, spiritual transformation takes place through learning. In verse 11, it says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. God gave these people to the church. He gave the church, the apostles, people who knew Jesus. He gave them the prophets, the people who spoke on behalf of God. He gave them the evangelists who shared the gospel with people who had not heard. He gave them the teachers who taught. And there's this simple fact that there is spiritual transformation that happens when the truth of God is revealed to you. And it runs all through this passage. In verse 13, it says, until we attain to the unity of faith and of the, what? The knowledge of the Son of God. Verse 14 says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Your doctrine, what you know is important, what you believe in is important. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. Knowledge, truth, teaching, learning, these are all really important things because we're transformed by what we learn. And I'm not just talking about sermons, uh, but I'm also talking about the Bible and listening to podcasts and reading books. If I ask you to think about your favorite book, if I was going to ask you to recommend a book for me to read, most of us would not recommend our organic chemistry or calculus book, textbooks. Right? Most of us wouldn't say, hey, my favorite book is uh, the dictionary. Right? And why? Those books have merit, right? There's a, there's a lot of information in those books. I don't know exactly what organic chemistry is, but there's a lot to be learned in that book. Uh, a dictionary has the definition and the spelling of words. There's lots of knowledge to be had in those books. But the reason why we don't often say those are our favorite books is because they don't change you. They don't transform you. There's a limit to how changed you can be from reading the dictionary over and over again. Most of us, if we were going to share our favorite books with people, we would think about the works of fiction or biographies, and we would say, read this book. Why? Because it changed my life. Read it. It can life-changing for you too. They're our favorite books because they transform us. The late Austrian philosopher uh, Ivan Illich said this, when he, asked, when he was asked about the most revolutionary way to change a society, he answered the question this way, neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society. Rather, you must tell a powerful new tale, one so persuasive that it sweeps the old myths away and becomes the preferred story, one so inclusive that it gathers all the bits of your past and your present into a coherent whole, one that even shines some light into your future so that we can take the next step. If you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. And what he's saying is, if you want to actually change, it's not through revolution or revolt or propaganda or any of those things, if you really want to see change happen, what you have to do is you have to tell a better story. It should come as no surprise to us that when 
Jesus was walking this earth, one of the ways that he was most commonly referred to was as rabbi or teacher. Think about that. Like, we're talking about Jesus, who in front of a bunch of people, God opened up the heavens and declared, this is my son whom, I'm lo- whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. That wasn't secret. People heard God declare that Jesus was his son whom he loves, with whom he is well pleased. That's, that's miraculous. This is the same Jesus who walked on water, who fed the 5,000, who, who, who healed blind people, who raised the dead, who did all these miracles. But you see it throughout the Gospels over and over again. When people refer to him, they don't call him miracle worker. They don't call him promise keeper or light in the darkness or even way maker. Right? Those things are all true. But it's astounding that this man who's doing all these miracles is not identified by the miraculous works, but by what? His teaching. Why? Because Jesus' teachings were radical. They were transformative. Jesus was teaching a gospel or a good news that was so different that it was sweeping away the understanding of the old and ushering and beckoning in something new. He was talking about a better life, a good life, an abundant life. I I use this verse all the time because it's one of my favorites, but John 10 says this, Jesus says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it to the full. Or in this, sorry, in in this translation, have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Right? And what Jesus is saying is what, you're, what you guys are used to is you guys are used to this story of the thief. That's what you're used to in this broken, sinful world. You're used to people or things or systems in this world that are constantly trying to take your hope and steal your joy and kill your dreams. And so what do you do? You say, well, I have to respond likewise because everything in my life, I've got to earn it and work for it and fight for it and protect it. So this world that's constantly trying to take and take and take from you, you say, well, I'm going to take first. That's the gospel of this world. That's the narrative that this world tries to tell you, that joy is in this world, happiness is in this world, but you've got to take it for yourself. But when Jesus comes and he says that, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly, he's talking about a different way of living. He's talking about a better way of living. He's saying you don't need to fight and claw and struggle for happiness and joy for you. You don't have to take your joy from this world because it's given to you. When Jesus dies on the cross, all the things that we seek, the happiness, the joy, the security, the satisfaction, the peace that we so often in our lives lack, is given to us in Christ. See, Jesus was telling a story about the good life, or again, he would call it the abundant life, a better story than the story that was being told of this world. He was telling this life-changing story. In all of Jesus' teachings, he's telling a better story about what it means to be godly or spiritual. He's telling a better story about what it means to be sexual, a better story about what it means to be human. 
And again, in this church, we summarize those teachings by this. We are the blood of God because of Christ alone. But this is the thing. And we taught that week in and week out at our church. Every single sermon, we try to get back to the fact that you are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. But here's the catch. Teaching is often where transformation begins, but it's not everything. Not everything. Getting right ideas into your head is a wonderful starting point, but it's not the end in itself. You can't just think your way to Christ-likeness. And believe me, I'm not telling you to be anti-intellectual. One of my favorite verses in Isaiah when God says, let us reason together, says the Lord. But in a lot of ways, we, we treat our faith like it's just, an, it's just an issue of learning when it's not. You see, in a lot of ways, we, we, we still live in this post-enlightenment world where we think, I think, uh, therefore I am. We, we buy into this Descartian rhythm that we as humans are merely thinking things and we pretend like we're like a computer on legs and all we need to do to be changed, all we need to do to be transformed is just to get a data input. We think if we really want to see our lives changed, if we really want to be transformed, then we just need to do like a system upgrade. It's like, uh, have you guys seen uh, uh, The Matrix? It's an older movie. Well, okay, some of you guys have seen it. But this guy, I mean, it's, it's played by Keanu Reeves, who, if you want to talk to me about it afterwards, I think is the most accomplished actor of our time. But it's played by this guy, and Keanu Reeves plays, I mean, to his credit, he plays a dumb guy really, really well. He's really good at it. His, it's, it's his talent. And so he's this dumb guy, and he's called to be the chosen one. And so what do they do? They hook him up into this machine, and they just download all this information into his head. And he says some of the most powerful words ever when he wakes up from his nap. He says, I know Kung Fu. But that's how we approach transformation a lot in our lives. We think that if we don't have a healthy marriage, then what do you have to do? I just got to go buy a book about how to have a healthy marriage. We think if we want to live healthier lives, we just watch a, 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 a YouTube or listen to a podcast about the benefits of a plant-based diet or, or, or the keto thing. And we think... We think if we had exercise, poof, there's transformation. The question is, how is that working out for you? If all you needed to live this abundant good life was to read more books, many more of us would be carrying around library cards. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out that knowing something in your head is not the same thing as doing, it with your, doing something with your body, which is still not the same thing as wanting to do that something with your heart. And the reality is that what we love in our heart, what we long for, and even the way that we spend our time has for, far more effect on the transformation that ends up happening in our lives than merely what happens in our heads. Getting right ideas into your head, it's a wonderful starting point, but it's not the end. Learning is vital, but it's just the beginning. Your mind is the initial port to your being. Okay, and the second way that we see spiritual transformation in this text is this, through practice. Through practice. Verse 12, it says, to equip the saints for what? The work of ministry, for the work of ministry. In other words, what you do matters. What you do matters. What you spend your time on, how you schedule out your time, it actually matters. 
Can you, can you put up that graphic? So a lot of times, especially in modern evangelical gospel-centered churches, we, we, we come up with this relationship between what we love and what we do. And rightfully, we make the connection or the causal relationship between what we love has an effect on what we do. But what we neglect or what we often overlook is the fact that there's a relationship between what we do and what we love. We often forget that. Honestly, if this is the one thing you take away from this sermon, this should be it. What you do matters because what you do affects what you love. For example, coffee. Right, I was talking to Dustin, and I know Ryan's really into coffee. Uh, I should have gotten more specifics from them, but I just didn't have time. But some of you guys are really passionate about coffee, right? You won't go to Dunkin' or even Starbucks is kind of beneath you. You have fancy machines to make it. I don't know much about it, right? But you, you are kind of, in, and I mean this in a really loving way, kind of a coffee snob, connoisseur. Let's use connoisseur. You're really passionate about it. You think about it. You, 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 you research better ways to get a better cup of coffee. You t- try all these different blends or whatever, right? But the question is, how many of you guys, the first time you drank coffee, actually liked it? Usually, if you're a young person, you drink coffee the first time, it's basically all just milk and sugar, and then you slowly start to wean yourself off of it, but you didn't like it when you first did it. And now, 10, 15 years later, you love it. Why? It's because of, because of all the time you spent with it. It's because of all the ways that you, it's all the time you spent thinking about coffee and making coffee and drinking coffee and going to different coffee shops. What you did affected what you love. Another example is like me and the Red Sox. If you talked to me in like 1998 to 2004, I was the most fanatical Red Sox fan ever. We went for 86 years without a title. And we got crushed by the Yankees every single year. And I kid you not, if you talk to me around the years of 2000, well, you guys probably weren't born or whatever, but if you talk to me in those years, I would have told you, seriously, I would have told you, you could take a year off the end of my life if the Red Sox could win the World Series. I actually meant it. That's how passionate I was about the Red Sox. I really wanted to see them win. So I went to all their games, and I went to visit Boston, and I saw all these games in Fenway. I constantly read about all the, all, the, all the moves that they're trying to make. It got so bad that in 2003, when we lost a really heartbreaking game to the, to the New York Yankees, my ex-girlfriend from college, the one who really kind of messed me up, like... She called me just to say, you know, how are you doing? I kid you not, I said to her, you remember when you broke up with me and how much that hurt? And she said, yes. I said, this hurts so much more than that. And I meant, oh, come on, I mean. <laughs> so, so I was so enthusiastic about the Red Sox. I would have given up a year or two years of my life just to watch them win. But then what happened? First of all, they won a lot. And secondly, I had kids. I don't have time to watch Red Sox games anymore. 
I hardly have time to watch. I never watch even SportsCenter. I just don't keep up with them. I don't spend time watching them. I don't read about them anymore. And so what's happened? Something that I was so enthusiastic about, a team that I was a fanatic for, I'm just not, I just don't love them the way, the way that I used to. So it works both ways. What you do affects what you love. What you do matters. How you spend your time changes it. What you do transforms you. And see, the thing is, most gospel-centered churches like ours rightfully emphasize the importance of the gospel and the finished work of Christ, that your salvation is through faith in Christ alone. And that's so true. But we're so afraid of legalism that if we're not careful, we just expect transformation to happen through what you learn in a church service. That if someone keeps telling you the gospel over and over again, somehow that will naturally lead to transformation in your life. But you've seen it in our church. It doesn't work that way. We did a reveal survey, which was like this church survey where they asked us all these questions. And the, and the, and the, and the feedback was, was really, really striking. In terms of doctrine, in terms of understanding justification, in terms of your salvation by Christ alone, even Trinity, all these things are people scored well above average. 80% of the people in our church, if you ask them to explain the gospel to you, they'll be like, I can do it, and it'll be pretty good. That's great. We got it in our heads. But if you looked at the spiritual discipline part, what you're actually doing with your time, whether you're going to the Word daily in prayer, going through the, to the Word daily, or if you're praying daily, well below average, like 20%. The idea that what all that matters is what you know or what you believe or what you love and there's no importance of what you do, it's not, we've experienced ourselves, it's not true. And what I'm saying is this, what you do has no effect on your salvation, that is true, but your salvation should have a significant effect on what you do. You know, look at passages like 2 Timothy three sixteen to 17 when he's talking about the word of God that is teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Training in righteousness. 1 Corinthians 9, where it's talking about being equipped and running a race and being self-controlled and disciplined. And why do we ignore verses like this and think that all that matters is what we know in our heads? What you know in your mind, what you say you love, should affect what you do with your life. That's not legalistic, that's just the truth. You know, like, I married my wife 12 years ago. I fooled her into marrying me. But I love her now more than I did 12 years ago, and it's because actually what you do, being with somebody, loving them, going through the hard times, actually investing the time in it, what you do actually affects what you love. But if I told you, but if, but, I, but, if, but if you found out that I ignored her all the time, that I, was, that I took advantage of her, that I stole money from her, that I cheated on her, all these things... And I said, well, but I love her. You'd be like, there's something wrong here. What you love should affect what you do, but what you do should affect what you love. So, you know, even in the book of James, what does he say? Faith without works is dead. Again, what you do matters. Maybe one of the reasons why we're not experiencing this powerful spiritual transformation in our lives is because of what we do with our time. I found out this cool thing that you can do on your iPhone. You can go into settings and you can go into battery. 
And then you can see how much, what percentage of your battery life is spent in the different apps. What you're actually doing on that phone that has so much of your heart and allegiance and loyalty to it tells you a lot about what you're doing with your time. And if you look at your iPhone, if you're spending, I don't know, five, six, seven hours in a day on it, and you're constantly in Netflix and Netflix and Instagram, couldn't be, that be one of the reasons why you're not being transformed? So, so what does is, what is, what is spiritual transform through, transformation through practice look like? Uh, you know, if, if you think back on the Sermon on the Mount, it's like Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and it's kind of, uh, you know, Matthew collecting some of the most important teachings of Jesus all in one place. And it's basically Jesus telling us what it means to be human and how we should all live. And what's interesting is traditionally, even on an academic or scholarly level, people basically said that it's a utopian ideal that can never be realized on this earth. Because if you read the Sermon on the Mount, the bar is set really, really high. You know, Jesus says things like, do not worry. That one's an easy one for me, but... I've heard rumors that some people struggle with worry and anxiety. It's not like anxiety is one of the most rampant issues in our society. Or what about the part where Jesus says that if you just look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. All through that certain amount, he's like, basically, you think the law says that this is the standard, but no, the standard's really up here. And the bar is undoubtedly set very high. But I think what some people miss is that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is also incredibly down to earth. If you just read the Sermon on the Mount, it's clear that Jesus just assumes that you get mad at people and that people get mad at you. It's a given that husbands and wives, they, they fight and they hurt each other. At some point, they're going to talk about divorce. It's a given that you look at people lustfully on the street and you objectify them. He assumes that you judge other people and that you have anger or even contempt in your heart, that you look down on other people and think that you're better than them. Jesus assumes that you buy more than you need. I mean, can you relate to any of that or all of it? Jesus just assumes that you're human and yet at the same time sets that bar, yeah, really, really high. What people miss is that Jesus begins and ends this teaching with this idea of practice. Practice. Uh, Before his first command, before the first of so many, you've heard it said, but I saith to you, Jesus says this in Matthew 5.19, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least of the kingdom of heaven. But whoever, what, practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then in the very last paragraph, after the last command, is a story about these two building projects. And Jesus basically says that for everyone who hears the words of mine and puts them into what practice, and then he says all these good things are going to happen to that person. But anybody who hears these words of mine and don't put these words into practice, the results will be disastrous. 
Jesus begins and ends this whole vision of a new way to be human with the idea of practice. He just assumes that walking with Jesus, growing more to be like him, it's going to take practice. Right? Because you don't read a command like, do not worry and respond, but you're like, okay, I'll do that. Now you have to go out and practice that, but we don't really talk about practice that much at church. Dallas Willard in his book, The Spirit of Discipline, says this, there is an immense difference between training to do something and trying to do something. There's this huge difference between training and trying. And most people think that we're, really, we're, that we're changed by just trying really hard when the exact opposite is true. Right? Like some of the people in our church, they're, they're training for, for marathons. And if I was going to say to you guys, right now, go, go and run a marathon. How would you do it? By, by training or trying? It would be easy to come to the conclusion that it's impossible for you to run a marathon. But that's just not true. It can be done by basically anybody in this room, apart from you having some kind of disability. You can do it through training. You can do it, but you, it can't be done by you yet. So how do you get to be the type of person who can run a marathon? It's not through trying, it's through training. You come up with one of these regiments or you find one on the internet where you're running miles and you add miles to it each week and after a couple months you can run 5 miles or 10 miles or 15 miles and by the end of the year you're the type of person who can actually complete a marathon. That's how we change. It's not through trying, but it's through training. That's how we're transformed. But very few people actually approach our relationship with Jesus this way. Most of us approach spiritual transformation by just trying really hard. I think about this guy who was on our original core team. He was like a college athlete. He was totally a stud. And um, I called him one day. And he's like, hey, can you call me? Hey, Brian, can you call me back in like two and a half hours? I was like, okay, that's cool. So I called him back in two and a half hours. Like, hey, what were you doing? And he's like, I, I just ran the Chicago Marathon. And I was like, like, because I, I mean, it was the core, time, core team time. I, I spent a lot of time with this guy. I was like, I had no idea that you were training to run a marathon. And he said to me, I ran five miles yesterday and decided I could just do it four more times. And he just went out and ran a marathon by trying really hard. And most of us, if we're honest, we live our spiritual lives like this. We think to ourselves, for transformation to happen, it's on me. I have to figure it out. I need to change myself. I need to try harder. And so we beat on like boats against the current, like born back ceaselessly into the past. And it doesn't work, and we end up feeling defeated. We end up believing the lie that you cannot change. Most of us, we respond to sermons on Jesus saying something like, do not worry, and we go out and we get inspired and we say, I'm going to try really, really hard not to worry today, but how does that work out for you? You probably don't get very far before you get an email from your boss or a call from your mother that stresses you out and then it's over. And it's so easy when we're trying to step into spiritual transformation to suffer failures and think that it can't be done. It's a utopian ideal. I can't be changed. I can't be transformed. And you just give up and go back to your normal way of living. I'll just watch Netflix a lot during the week and I'll come to church and sit through it. 
But according to Jesus, and even I struggle to believe this at times, through discipleship with him, you can become the type of person who's free of anxiety. It won't be perfect. You'll still be stressed out. But through practice, even in your humanity, you, become, you can become more like Jesus. What I mean by practice is really the practices of Jesus or what we kind of call the spiritual disciplines. Practically speaking, that's how we train to become more like Jesus. Go back to the worrying example. Do you want to be a peaceful person? Do you, do, do, how many of you guys uh, would like to be set free from your anxiety? One option is just to try really hard in the week ahead with all the work and with all the relationships and all the traffic from All-Star Weekend and all that stuff just not to worry. Good luck with that. But the other way is to train. And how does that look like? What does that look like? What if you were instead to look at the scriptures and study how Jesus lived his life and what he taught, and you did your best in your own imperfect and messy way to follow Jesus? What if you were to live like Jesus lived? For example, what if you decided to actually practice the Sabbath, to take 24 hours or 12 hours to start wherever you can and decide to just Simply rest in God's provision for you. What if during this time you stopped buying things, you didn't check your email or social media, and you just rested and worship? What if you just enjoyed a day in Jesus' company by doing what's life-giving to you? A novel or a walk on a walk or a brunch with friends or a nap? What if you just set aside a whole day to let your soul catch up with your body and just enjoy Jesus' company? What if you started your day in the morning by practicing some silence and solitude and prayer? What if, I, I, let me ask you, what, what is the first thing you do when you wake up? If you're like me, the first thing I do when I wake up is I reach over to the bedstand and I grab my phone. And from a night's rest, I start my day by just inviting into my life the whole world with its brokenness and heartbreak, the pressure to conform and perform from social media, angry emails from your boss, a list of things that I have to do. That's the first thing that I start off in, in my morning, and I wonder why I'm an anxious person. Then I rush off the shower and try to get to where I have to be so that I can take care of everything. Yeah, it's no wonder why we're anxious people. But what if instead you just, you just woke up and you, you breathed a little bit and over a cup of tea or coffee, you just centered your mind and your body on the presence of God and lived out what Jesus called abiding in him. Starting your day from a place of restful, grateful relationship with Jesus. What if you were to live in community where every Wednesday or Thursday night you met with the same people and all the stuff that you're stressed about, that you worry about, all the burdens that you carry with you? What if you actually had a family to share those burdens with who would pray for you and comfort you and encourage you? Over time, through practice and training, believe it or not, you would become a less anxious, more perfect person person, more peaceful person. 
over time, you would find yourself being transformed into someone who looked a lot more like Christ. And so when we talk about transformation through practice, we have to remember trying and training are both hard. One is impossible. The other is the invitation to the abundant life of Jesus. And on the third point is that spiritual transformation happens through community. We see it in for building up the body of Christ. Transformation happens through community, for the community. God gave us the church because he knew that we would need each other in order for transformation to really take place. I visited one of um, the community groups uh, on Friday night, and the icebreaker was about um, New Year's resolutions. And, you know, it being kind of the middle of February, a lot of them had already failed. Right? And, and, and the question is, why is this? And I think it's anytime you really want to change, whether it's a diet or to read more books or spend less money, it's very possible to get off to a good start. First week, first, two, you're fe- first week or two, you're feeling good. But what happens when you're exposed to someone who's not really that great at changing? What happens when you start to miss workouts or you start to eat foods that were on that list that you weren't supposed to eat or you just don't read books for a while? I think we feel ashamed, we beat ourselves up, and we give into this line that, you know, change is just not possible. And that's where community comes into play. It's a place to be both exposed and encouraged. Uh, here's a photo uh, from the Pilates class uh, that I teach each week. Why are you guys laughing? Do we have the photo or no? No? Okay. Well, there was a photo, and I'm just kidding. Obviously, I do not teach a Pilates class, but I have been going to a Pilates class for the last two weeks. And um, this is the thing. Like, Pilates is scary. Like, I was actually anxious and scared the first time I went to the class because the machine looks like a torture device. Like, it literally looks like a medieval torture device. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's going to be so painful. Um, I'm going to be so sore. I'm going to be embarrassed. Um, and it, it's true, Pilates is, is hard. It's, it's, it's one of the most difficult workouts I've ever done. It hurts muscles that uh, I never knew that I had. And the thing is, when, when I, I was at a class on Friday, and I kid you not, five minutes into the class, before the warm-up was even done, I literally thought to myself, I'm done. Forget this, I'm going home. And the big reason why I went back last week and the reason why I plan to go this week is because of the community aspect of it. If they'd put up that photo, it would have shown me and Eugenia and Grace taking that class together and all hand, holding up twos because it was the second class that we had done together. I would say that all of us in our own ways have been exposed in this Pilates class. None of us are like naturally gifted at Pilates. None of us are the LeBron James of uh, Pilates. It hurts, we get sore, it's tiring, it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's really embarrassing. But even though we're exposed in our weaknesses, we don't give up because we're there to encourage each other and to challenge each other. You know, when I'm, uh, when I'm really thinking about leaving, I look over at Eugenia, who just had a baby three months ago, and I think I have to keep going. If she can do it, I better not give up. Or when it hurts so much that I say, okay, I'm going home, and Grace laughs, even though I'm totally serious, and encourages me to keep going. 
And the question I have for you is, what if our community groups were less like a classroom where like, we're all kind of pretending to be experts and we're pretending like we have it all together, and it looked more like a spiritual Pilates class where people were being exposed for their ordinariness, the, 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 the ordinary ways that they are, the brokenness, the fact that they can't really change, the fact that they're not great at changing. But what if it was an idea that we were all together and we were teaching each other and we were helping each other along and we were rooting for each other and we were celebrating each other? What if when we came to our communion groups, that's the kind of community that we found? You're not very good at this and I'm not very good at this, but I believe that we can kind of experience a spiritual transformation together. See, as we move along this path of transformation. There will be some seasons when everything is easy, it's just coming naturally and we're riding high, but there will be other times when you feel exposed, when we will start to believe the lies that we can't be changed and we can't be transformed, and that's why you need community, the body of Christ, to encourage you during these times. People who love you and accept you, not because you're funny or useful or impressive, but because of your identity in Christ. You need people to remind you not to try and earn back your standing before God because it has already been earned and given to you. And you need people to encourage you that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's why transformation through community is so important because it's through community and all those aspects of it, exposure, encouragement, accountability, and unity, where we have the place where transformation can take place. And then really quick to wrap it up, what happens when all this comes together? What happens when we're being transformed by what we learned and what we do and who we do it with? Verse 13 says, until we all attain you will attain it to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal. Verse 15 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Verse 16 says, For whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When all those things come together and you're you're, you're being transformed by what you learn and what you practice and who you do it with, what the passage tells us is you are transformed to be more like Christ. You will attain the fullness of Christ. You will grow into Jesus. You will grow in your understanding of God's love for you and your capacity to love others. You will be transformed powerfully into a spirit-filled disciple. So straight talk, this is, the, this is where we get really practical with the application. One of the ways that we're challenging our church people this year is to get into daily Bible reading within our community groups. Okay? And, and it's because the way that I look at it, it checks off all three boxes. What you learn, you're in the Word. What you practice, you're doing it daily. Who you do it with, it's got to be through your community group. Because if I just tell you guys to go read your Bible every day, some of you guys might last a week or a month. But when we get exposed and we 
start to believe the lie that we can't change, then we'll just give up. I really do believe that if our church, in your community groups, I'm going to ask that you guys spend time in your community groups this week to talk about what it would look like if in a year from now we were celebrating what God has done by us getting into the Word daily. To dream that dream, to think what it will look like, how it will feel like, what God could do in your life if through your community group you were getting into the Word every single day. So I don't want you guys, when you guys are together, just to talk about the the way, the means in which you'll see this change happen. The way that you're going to keep each other accountable. No, I want you guys to actually imagine or dream what will happen a year from now if you actually take these steps of transformation for your life. Let's pray.